From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It has rained and rained and rained some more. The state climatologist joins us with some perspective. Then, if you get lost hiking or injured climbing in the backcountry, a local rescue team may save your life. Teams that are highly skilled but humbly funded. We fundraise everything. It's all donations from private donors. We sell t-shirts and hats. But really, it's been a huge process over the years of building a donor list and connecting with people who want to support us. Well, there's a new boost for search and rescue. Then we eavesdrop on graduation speeches, first in Gunnison. A long time ago, our parents and guardians planted little seeds. Well, those seeds have flowered today. And speaking of seeds, your spring gardening questions answered. Black Pearl. Sheila. Kermit the Corn. Just some of the names belonging to beloved cars donated to Colorado Public Radio. And some of the reasons people gave for donating their friend. I couldn't think of a better cause for the last bits of her life. I'm sad to see him go, but glad to know he'll be of good use. It's easier to let go of your car when you donate it to Colorado Public Radio. Learn how at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Much of the front range is drawing comparisons to Seattle. The rain has been relentless, more precipitation in days than we've gotten in months. It is supposed to taper off today, but we just had to get the state meteorologist on the line for some quick perspective. And Russ Schumacher, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Why has this system been parked over us? Like what's going on in the sky? Yeah, we've had this uh, this trough of low pressure uh, kind of sitting and spinning over the middle part of the country for the last few days. And here in Colorado, we're on the, the west side of the system now. So what that ends up meaning is kind of the moisture wraps around the north side of that low pressure system and then pushes up here against the front range. And so we've had uh, obviously some big thunderstorms a couple days ago, including quite a bit of hail. Since then, just, yeah, steady rain over most of the front range and the northeastern plains as well. Hail and tornadoes, right? That's right. Yeah, there was at least a couple of tornadoes spotted out near Akron the other night. Can you put the amount of moisture into context for us? The heaviest rain, the largest amounts that have been reported have been sort of from the eastern Denver metro, you know, Aurora area, DIA Aurora area, and then down through Castle Rock and then down into Colorado Springs. Um, So at DIA, it was 3.57 inches over the last two days, plus some more uh, this morning. Uh, It's the third wettest two-day period that has ever been observed in Denver. and at Colorado Springs, it was the wettest May day that, that they've ever had with the uh, 3.18 inches yesterday. Um, some pretty remarkable totals. Um, obviously, we've seen some flooding issues, but the good news is that it it didn't all come in six hours. It, it, it was you know somewhat more steady and, and relentless, like you said, but not super heavy amounts, but spread out over a couple of days, three days now, really. And so localized flooding, leaky roofs. So I want to acknowledge what a major headache that is. But Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about the potential benefits here. Um, Does the moisture this has dumped help lower the risk of wildfire? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in the mountains, most mountain areas have seen pretty big snowpack this winter. And so that's going to get the soils moistened up there. Then we look out onto the eastern plains where the spring is been pretty dry up to this storm. And so this is a is a huge benefit for the agricultural areas of eastern Colorado, which have have of course struggled with with drought mightily over the last several years. This is going to be a big help there to turn that around, at least for in the short term during during the planting season and the uh, early part of the growing season to get all this rain is going to be a big boost. Okay, good to know. And so this in some ways, this is kind of balancing out the moisture picture from the mountains to the to the plains, you know, that's right. Yeah. So the and and I mean, even the high elevations have gotten a fair amount of snow during during this storm as well. So it's keeping the snow up there. I, you know, there is always that question as we try to parse out weather from climate. Is the wetness we've experienced, the moisture we've experienced, would that be something to expect over the long haul in the face of climate change? So May is the, for at least for the northern front range, May is the wettest month on average. So it's not that unusual to get, you know, a, a big sock, a couple days of big rains in in May. Um, the general expectation under climate change is probably more extended dry periods than punctuated by more intense rain mm. uh, in between. So maybe not a big change in the overall amount of precipitation, but longer dry periods with then periods of, of even more intense rain uh, in between those. We've seen some of that in Colorado up to this point. We haven't seen a lot of trends yet, at least in the in the really heavy, the really extreme rain amounts. That's very much been seen in, say, the Midwest and, and the Southeast. And I think partly here it's because we've been mostly mired in drought for the last couple of decades and haven't had other than something like the September 2013 flood. We haven't had uh, these big floods. But that is something we sort of expect in the in the future. The, you know, the increases in intense rain probably will show up here in Colorado as well, even though they haven't up to this point. Yeah. And so I remain grateful for what you've said earlier, which is that it has been a lot of rain, but it has been steady and over a prolonged period. Russ, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Russ Schumacher directs the Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Here's something lopsided. Outdoor recreation in Colorado is a $10 billion industry, but the state had been spending just a fraction of that, $600,000, on search and rescue. Well, that is changing, and volunteers across Colorado say it's a must if they're going to keep providing free help. Here's Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. Search and rescue teams do a little bit of everything. It could be a lost hiker in the Flat Tops Wilderness, a swift water rescue on the Gunnison River, or probing an avalanche field in the San Juans, which is why these teams are managed locally. As for how they're funded, it's the kitchen sink, too. We fundraise everything. It's all donations from private donors. We sell t-shirts and hats. But really, it's been a huge process over the years of building a donor list and connecting with people who want to support us. Jenny Hart is with Ure Mountain Rescue. For the first time in nearly 50 years, they asked local governments for money. That's because interest in the outdoors is starting to outpace what bake sales can support. As for who's being rescued? In general, we don't rescue all that many locals. Jeff Sparhawk heads the Colorado Search and Rescue Association. 
you know, maybe 20, 30 percent of the rescues are for locals and a large majority are for folks from out of county. It might be one county away or might be the metro area or might be out of state or out of country. And so really we've, we're seeing that tourism, where tourism is successful in Colorado, is where rescues happen more often. But help for the helpers is on the way, thanks to a handful of steps the legislature's taken in recent years. Tying state park passes to vehicle registrations will generate millions of dollars for teams around the state that previously competed for a much smaller pie. And just last week, Colorado Parks and Wildlife raised the price of Colorado Search and Rescue cards, a sort of formalized donation system to support responders. Perry Boydston, State Search and Rescue Program Manager, says this will mean local outfits can request more grants for equipment. Some of the counties haven't really looked into what they need because they've just been functioning on what they have. When you don't have a lot of money, you don't look you know, to what you wish you had. Now that there is a little bit more money, they're starting to think a little bit like, wow, if we had this, then it would improve our response times by an hour or two hours, right? And that's big when you're dealing with life and death situations. But money's not the only issue, says Jeff Sparhawk. We're seeing an aging of the volunteer responders. We're seeing that it's difficult to attract long-term members. Uh, In some areas in the metro area, attracting interested folks is not necessarily all that difficult. But who's going to stick around for 20 or 30 years when people change jobs and move so frequently these days is difficult. Right. We, we have a model that's been, been around for, for 75 years, uh, but it relies upon a more stable population. Surprise, surprise. It's also a housing issue, he says. For, for most of the, the younger folks, if you're living in a mountain community, you're working multiple jobs, probably, just to live there. And you don't necessarily have time for search and rescue. You don't have the disposable income to, to donate to, to search and rescue. And so, you know, the, the greater societal challenges are affecting us the same way they're affecting everybody else. And while most of the state's 3,000 or so annual rescues take place on the front range, the trickiest ones often occur in more remote spots. If you think about a county like Custer County, small, small local population, really big mountains, it's really tough on those volunteers. They don't have a ton of them to pull folks off those big mountains. So search and rescue professionals are looking to lessen the burden in order to continue helping people at no cost. That includes mental health support for volunteers and education for backcountry explorers, so they don't need to be rescued in the first place. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Okay, let's spend a little more time now with Jenny Hart, who you heard in Tom's story. She's been with Uray Mountain Rescue for 25 years, both in the field and fundraising. And hi, Jenny. Hi. Uray County is home to Mount Sneffels, which, by the way, is the background of the new driver's license. It's a 14er. When someone gets injured on Sneffels, what does that look like for them and for you? Well, it's tricky because... Uh, Sneffels has accessed up a very rough old mining road, which is now a Jeep road. And um, it's an easily an hour drive just to the trailhead. Oh. So response times are, are long for us. Um, another issue is that if you get hurt up there, there is no cell service unless you are at the tippy top of the mountain. And if you are, then you can see Montrose and therefore you can get a cell at the tippy top of the mountain. 
But if you're anywhere on the south side of the peak, which is the way that people climb it, there is no cell coverage at all. There is an emergency phone down the road, but that could be a 30, 40 minute drive just to get to the emergency phone. So it's tricky. It's tricky. And that makes me think when you get word that someone is injured or stuck, it may have been hours that they've been in that predicament. And then it's several more hours until you can get to them. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, this may sound like an absurd question. Do you have access to a helicopter? We do. We partner with a lot of different agencies for different purposes. Um, we work with a wildland firefighting agency that has availability in the summer, and they're very helpful. Um, sometimes we partner with medical helicopters, um, and occasionally we work with the 10th Mountain Division helicopter crews out of Eagle Um, It just depends on the rescue and the weather and the scenario. But that's a tremendous amount of coordination. And I just want to underscore how many volunteers are doing this sort of work. I I also think of how much there is to do in and around Uray besides climbing 14ers. Frankly, all the ways people can get into trouble. Uh, Will you list some of the other types of rescues you would do in the area? Yeah, we have such a fun playground here in the San Juans. Uh, There's canyoning where people rappel down waterfalls. We have uh, many via ferrata, which are, um, it's kind of like supported climbing with iron cables. And those are really becoming popular. We have a lot of jeeping and side-by-side activity on our back roads. We have a lot of hiking. We have 84 highly maintained hiking trails just in Uray County alone. So you know, there's also backcountry skiing and ice climbing and rock climbing. Uh, there's a lot of ways to have fun, and sometimes things go wrong. And sometimes things go wrong. And that means you have to adapt your search and rescue for all of those different sorts of environments and potentially different injuries. Uh, you're, speaking, you're speaking to someone who's more indoorsy than out. What did you mean by side-by-side activity? Uh, there's new vehicles out there today. They're... they're uh, smaller than Jeeps. Oh, yes. They, they're, they're kind they're of bigger than a ATV. Yeah. Um, some, t- some people call them razors. Uh, they're very, very popular in the mountains and they are dangerous. Do they flip over? Yes. Uh-huh. I understand the million dollar highway, which runs along cliff faces between Uray and Silverton, requires you to have a modified vehicle for search and recovery. Tell us about that. Yes, we have uh, we have some pretty amazing customized vehicles, and uh, the vehicle that we use for rescues off 550 involves a boom pole. Uh, so it's a it's kind of a triangle made of metal that comes off the front bumper of our truck, and it's suspended in the air over the edge of the drop off, and it creates a high angle so that we can run our rope systems over it and lower rescuers down and then also haul a litter or a person back up to the roadway Hmm. using that system. Assuming that they have gone over the side of the road. And that does happen. Uh Uh-huh. And I have to imagine that sometimes that's fatal, which makes me- Yes, it can be for sure. Makes me wonder about your mental health. After all these years, do you get much support for it? You know, that it's really changing. Um, 
I would say in the 25 years I've been a part of rescue, I would say the vast majority of that time, we weren't overly concerned about mental health or the impact of these tragic events and how they impact our lives. But the state of Colorado is recognizing that it's a problem and they're doing some really exciting things to support rescuers. The Responder Alliance Group has been providing training to rescue teams and rescue members. And it has to do with recognizing how these types of incidents impact your own mental health. But it goes further than that because we also are getting training on how to help support family members of people who have been injured. Um, and also how to really bolster our team culture so that we're keeping each other healthy and safe in, in mental health ways. Mm -hmm. So there's some exciting changes happening and I think it's really important work. What will these new infusions of money mean for your Ray Mountain Rescue? Um, like what, what tops your wish list? Oh my goodness. Uh, it's such a challenge to raise money and we've always done it uh, literally unsupported. Uh, our county sheriff has a line item in the budget for rescue, but it doesn't support us at all. What it means is that when the sheriff's department is supporting a rescue, he has money to support his team wow. in supporting us. So we've really been donor funded for the last 50 years. I think we're 49 years old. Um, we've sold a lot of t-shirts and a lot of hats. Yeah. Um, but we really do try to reach out to donors and people like to donate to our cause. Um, we have a lot of equipment that we need to purchase and maintain. We have three rescue vehicles and then we own a side-by-side -side because those vehicles are agile. Uh, we have numerous ropes of various lengths and sizes. We have all sorts of equipment that's needed for all sorts of different scenarios. So it takes a lot of effort to maintain our vehicle fleet and our equipment and we use it. So it needs to be replaced on a regular basis. Yeah. You don't want to be using old rope, that's for sure. No. To this idea that housing and labor is an issue with search and rescue, especially in more rural areas, where and how do you find volunteers? We have the most amazing group of people on our rescue team. It's truly amazing. We are so blessed. The people that volunteer for Uray Mountain Rescue are highly intelligent, incredibly generous, and highly skilled individuals. We have a rigorous process for joining our team. So if you're interested, you can put in an application, but we only review those once a year in the spring. If your application is chosen, you could be interviewed by our membership committee. And then if you are deemed worthy, then you are invited to become an initiate. And then you have a probationary period of a full year. Oh. And during that time, you must attend uh, two trainings a month and we have a monthly meeting. So the, and then, the commitment is huge, but that means that, well, you can't choose just anyone. So give me an example of getting creative to find someone. You know, we, we don't have a problem in finding people. They come to us. We have a great reputation in our community mm. and people really respect our organization. And so we have a lot of people that come to us. We haven't found it challenging to find people. 
thank goodness. Well, I'm I'm so grateful on your behalf. You know, in just the last few moments, Jenny, what is a piece of advice you'd give those listening so that they don't have to be rescued? Like what's a mistake you see out in the back country that could be avoided and uh, perhaps then you don't have to be deployed? That's a great question. I think one of the number one things that we run into that people do not think about is that when they need help, if they are able to use a cell phone to call us, they are often running out of battery when they do. So to prevent that from happening, put your phone in airplane mode when you set out for your hike or when you leave town. And then your battery is much more preserved so that if you do have some sort of incident, you will have battery life on your phone so that we can communicate with you. I would also say that weather is a big factor. Checking the weather forecasts and being prepared for whatever can happen is really important because in the mountains, things can change very quickly. Yeah. Be aware of conditions. And uh, that airplane mode suggestion is a great one. Thanks so much for your time and your service. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Jenny Hart is with Uray Mountain Rescue. And we'll be right back with the sounds of the season. Graduation season, that is. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Graduation is a time to celebrate and maybe fret a little bit about the future. So a good commencement speech balances inspiration and reassurance. Over the next few weeks, we'll dip into ceremonies around the state. And let's begin in Gunnison, where Western Colorado University held ceremonies last weekend and where a student speaker had a surprise. Now it is my distinct honor to introduce the 2023 student commencement speaker, Maria Alvarez Juarez. I'm already gonna cry. Hola, my papa. Sorpresa. Es un honor poderlos representar hoy. Mis logros son gracias a ustedes. Espero poder ser buen ejemplo para mis hermanos. Pero no se pongan a llorar, que pues yo ya empecé. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I did not tell my parents I'd be up here today. I can confirm they are both shocked and thrilled to see me here. And I think every parent and guardian out there can agree. <laughs> We are the class of 2023. We survived our freshman year of online classes, our sophomore year filled with restrictions, our junior year when things started getting back to normal, and now finally our senior year of newfound normality. Although we had a rocky start, each and every one of us will be walking across this stage with our loved ones ready to cheer us on for all of our hard work. And it is an honor to be speaking on behalf of you all today. Es un honor poder representar a la gente latina y aún más el honor poder representar a los que tienen DACA 
y a la gente indocumentada, porque sí se puede. For those of you who don't know, my name is Maria Alvarez Juarez, and I am a first-generation DACA student. <laughs> Let me say it again. My name is Maria Alvarez Juarez, and I am a first-generation DACA student. <laughs> DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The greatest opportunity I received was being brought to the U.S. when I was four years old in search of the American dream. Growing up, I was always afraid of what it meant, afraid of what people would think of me, and afraid of what it meant for my future. I'm sure I'm not the first nor the last to feel this way. One of the biggest reasons why I'm on this stage today is because the faculty and staff on this campus made me feel safe. Alvarez Juarez is from Lafayette, Colorado, a business major with a double minor in sociology and economics. She addressed the class of 2023 on a windy day in Gunnison, not uncommon at 7,700 feet above sea level. Our hard work has paid off and we are itching to move on, except this is not the end of our endeavors. It is the beginning of the next phase of our lives. Continue to be ambitious and achieve your goals. We are the next generation of bright-minded individuals, and it is our turn to change the world and make it a better place. This is not the end. We must continue our hard work and achieve more. A long time ago, our parents and guardians planted little seeds. Well, those seeds have flowered today. Las semillas que nuestros padres plantaron hace mucho han florecido hoy. Maria Alvarez Juarez, graduate and student speaker at Western Colorado University in Gunnison this past weekend. More speeches from around the state in the coming days. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as we tend to your gardening questions. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's not certain who first put ham, onion, and bell peppers in the Denver omelet. It may have adapted from a Chinese dish called egg foo young that railroad workers might have adapted with ingredients easily found in the West. But a plaque in downtown Denver claims the omelet was, quote, developed to mask the stale flavor of eggs shipped by wagon freight. What's not in question is that the omelet first appeared as the filling in the Denver sandwich. In 1907, at least two Denver restaurants and one hotel declared they invented it. Portable, tasty, and packed with protein, the Denver sandwich was enjoyed by people from coast to coast and became extremely popular. However, by 1980, more and more diners were choosing the dish with cheese minus bread. It's hard to find a Denver sandwich on menus today, but the Denver omelet is still a low-carb favorite. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This weekend, Mother's Day, is traditionally when it's safe to start planting flowers and gardens in Colorado. The weather is just too unpredictable prior to that. Of course, we've seen rain, hail, snow, and tornadoes this week alone. So for some sound gardening advice, Fatima Imad is back, co-founder of Frontline Farming, which does food-based advocacy in Denver. Many of the questions that she'll answer come from our audience. And hi, Fatima. Hi, Ryan. Happy to be here. One listener asked tongue-in-cheek, why does it hail immediately after I plant my tomatoes? I'm, curi- I'm curious how your plants have fared this week with all the moisture and maybe even some pelting. It seems like we're getting some 
rain, um, which, you know, it's a blessing for us, but also sort of that first time in the last couple of years where we're all on high alert for hail. It feels like it's either wildfires or hail. It's a tough growing season out here. Um, I think the first thing is just that we get hail in such different ways across the front range and it hits different spots. And so we never really know where it's going to hit and it's really hard to prepare for. Mm. What I always hope is that if it's going to hail, um, that we don't get hail after June because our growing season is so short. And so I want to encourage you to be prepared on smaller scales. You can always try to cover your plants and have a plan beforehand and not just when you see the hail coming, um, but also be prepared to replant and have backup starts. And if you can still get them in by mid-June, you still have hope. And there are other things you can transition to growing as the season goes, even if you do get hit by hail. No, I hear you saying be proactive, but also be prepared to replant. I appreciate the sobering nature of that. Uh, from tomatoes uh, to another food growing question, Angie C. Platten wants to know if okra will grow in Colorado. She says she has some seedlings inside and knows they love humidity. Have you tried okra? I love this question, Angie. I totally grow okra and okra is such an important food base um, in, in Arabian food and also Ethiopian food where I'm from and actually is said to originate from Ethiopia. Um, you can grow okra in Colorado. Well, all of your friends love okra. Um, okra is so particular to people. They're always talking about how it's so slimy, but it really doesn't have to be. And of course, when you grow it yourself, um, it, it's not as slimy. It's not coming out frozen and so on and has such a great taste. I grow a lot of okra. There's red okra, green okra, white okra. And as our temperatures get warmer here in Colorado, I certainly have been experimenting more with Southern crops. My one advice for you that comes to me from um, elders that taught me is that you never really want to transplant okra. You always want to grow okra from seed. It's very particular. It does not do well when transplanted. So I would say, go ahead and plant the ones that you have growing already and transplant them, but also go ahead and seed some. And when you do soak it the night before and then plant those seeds. And, and I think you'll grow some great okra and please do. Mm. I have to say, I love dried okra. I don't know if you've tried dried okra fatima but it's an excellent snack maybe with like just a little bit of seasoning um okay mark lucas of denver sent us this i grow a mix of drought tolerant wildflowers everything i've seen online says do not fertilize or do anything because it would just promote leaf growth um, is that correct anything more i can do for flowers mark says well, I think what's important to understand in that question, and Mark, thanks for growing wildflowers and thinking about, um, you know, growing drought tolerant plants. I think when you're really kind of considering fertilizing, you want to understand what you're applying. There's so many different fertilizers, but the main ones um, are, are labeled for you on your bags, which are nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And each of these things do um, very different things. And so when we're talking about vegetative growth and the, all that leaf growth, um, that's really high levels of nitrogen that we're thinking about. And oh. so 
applying a lot of nitrogen-based thing at any time. Even we start the season with nitrogen-based um, fertilizers. And then we will switch to when we want to get flowering to more phosphorus and adding more phosphorus to get blooms and such. So I want you to really think about what nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus do mean um, and how you're applying fertilizers at different times. I think the point is when you're you're working with wildflowers and drought tolerant plants that they should really be adapted to growing in this region and you shouldn't really have to do so much. What I would say is as always start with your base, make sure your soil is well cultivated, put some compost in. Compost might not have these high numbers that you'll see for um, in for other for fertilizers at the store that might not be organic, but what it does is it slowly releases all of the macro and micronutrients for you. So make your soil good, put a little um, compost in and, and I'm sure that your flowers will take well for you. Do you want to name a few drought tolerant flowering plants while we're on the subject? Do you have a favorite? Absolutely. And, you know, drought tolerant Flowering plants can also be pollinators, so it's not like it's exclusive in that way, but there are so many. Of course, there are lots of trees and shrubs that can be drought tolerant, but when I think of flowers, we're thinking of perennials um, that are going to come back every year for you. Some of my favorites are yarrow. Uh, yarrow, particularly white and yellow, has a lot of medicinal value. Your sages, bellflowers, Coreopsis, coneflower, also known as echinacea, um, lavender can take pretty well to trout, uh, blue phlox, primrose, penstemon, um, creeping phlox, a lot of different kinds of salvias. And one thing I would just want to remind um, listeners is that even if a plant is drought tolerant, especially when planting it and beginning it, I learned that the hard way this year with butterfly bush that died on me um, oh. because I planted it last year is it still needs water and particularly in a dry winter I want to encourage you to think about giving your plants a little water so they establish and then can be resilient to those conditions in the future. If you decide to grow lavender I'll just ask that you bring some of it by the studio. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe we we'll... have lots. We'd love to some. <laughs> okay, uh, Fatima, we had several folks ask about growing in Denver's intense sunlight, including rooftops. So from Emily Kelly Fisher, how can I prevent my plants from being fried to death in the downtown Denver sun? Well, Emily, this is such a great question. And I think that as we're dealing with climate chaos and changing conditions, it's good for us to reflect first and foremost on what we're trying to grow. And if we need to start adjusting to warmer climate type crops, mm. I know I've switched to considering growing some Southern crops like sweet potatoes. And as we discussed even before, okra, which takes high heat. So I want you to think about what you're um, planting and then 
what I, I, you know, traditionally hear what you're told is you want to be Southern facing and capture a lot of that sunlight. But even for me at my home, I've really thought about how I can get more on Northern facing sides now because of that extreme heat. I don't, we don't need more sun. We don't need more heat on our plants all the time right now. So perhaps think about the direction in which you're setting up your plants. And I would encourage you certainly if you're able um, to, to set them up on a Northern facing way, um, if you have east facing, remember it receives light in the morning and um, is cooler later. And if you're west um, facing, your windows receive light in the afternoon as well. So think about the directions. Of course, if you just have a balcony and you're really dealing with that, then I would encourage thinking about putting up a shade over it. Um, plants are scorching. I deal with it with our tomatoes in the field. Some farmers have taken to even spraying their plants at that really hot time of day where you can just see they, they need some cooling just like you or I probably do. So you could think about kind of, it's called like hydroblasting them, um, but really applying some cool water, misting them during the day when it's above 100 you don't like it. I don't like it. Most plants don't fare well in those temperatures at all. They're really in that 80 to 90 degree, even for hot plants as well. So um, the last thing I would say is also consider mulching in your pots or wherever you're planting. That'll help keep the soil cool, which is also important. So uh -huh. um, yeah, a couple different considerations to work around um, conditions that we can't really change with this extreme heat. Fascinating that it's not just the growing season changing, but what grows, what can grow. Uh, Sheena Ann Cotty writes, I've managed to keep some indoor plants alive for two years and want to expand outdoors to my balcony. What are some year-round options for a newbie looking to expand outdoors? Oh, well, Sheena, I think that you're able to keep plants healthy inside is, is great and yeah. a testament to how you'll be able to succeed um, in growing outside as well. Indoor plants are, are pretty difficult as well and, and require a lot of care. Um, if you're thinking about pots outside, it, it's hard to have a lot of color in winter pots here, and it is pretty extremely cold. So you want to think about the pots that you're using, um, you know, terracotta pots will freeze a lot easier, whereas using iron or heavy plastic or stone and trying to insulate the pot will help the soil um, not to freeze in those ways. Ah. The other thing to do is um, you have your you're such a good inside grower is um, experiment with all kinds of plants in your pots and pull them in in the winter and take care of them and grow them bigger and then pull them out and um, make your balconies look beautiful during the warm times as well. Indoor, outdoor. Okay, a few questions about critters and pests. On social media, we got this question. What's the best, ideally non-harmful way to keep squirrels and rabbits out of my vegetable garden? <laughs> Ryan, I think I get this question almost every time um, when I come on, <laughs> yeah. particularly about squirrels. And so what I want to tell you about squirrels is that if you have trees, that's really their habitat. And it's hard in backyards to avoid that they're going to be around and they can jump into things. So 
Um, whether it's squirrels or rabbits, the first thing I want to say to you is you got to show them who's boss. Um, the more that you allow them to get comfortable and don't keep chasing them away, the more they get territorial and brazen um, and going in the garden. Mm. So that's the first thing. Um, even if you're not going to be violent to them, you can um, kind of try to maybe throw things around them and not hit them, but really showing them that they shouldn't be in that space. When it comes to rabbits, and it's the same with squirrels, I always think they're so rude in how they do attack our gardens because you might be waiting for weeks um, for that one tomato to ripen. And right when it turns red, rabbits just come in and take a bite and leave. And then they come back and do that to your other tomato. And it's like, if we could just share and you could take this whole thing, but nope, they come and attack and sort of destroy. For rabbits, um, what we do and what you should do if you're really trying to successfully grow is put rabbit fencing in. There's ways to do that. You should kind of trench about four inches into the ground, um, put rabbit caging material. It's like chicken wire, get some posts and enclose your garden. Um, they can dig under if it's low here at our farm. They um, watch when we've put steps so we can step over our rabbit fencing. They'll even jump on our steps and go over they're pretty intelligent in those ways. So I would encourage you to build some rabbit fencing and um, show them who's boss. Intelligent and rude creatures. Okay, uh, Laura Guy asks, all my roses were taken out by Japanese beetles last summer. Will they come back again this year? And is neem oil an option? Yes, I get the Japanese beetle question all the time. And I know that it's painful. There isn't really natural predators for them here. Um, look, roses, they get it the worst. I've um, sort of stopped planting a lot of roses in my own landscaping work. Oh. And really want to plant roses, I would encourage you to think about planting wild roses. Those tend to be more resilient. But you have roses, they're growing. I do think that with this early rain, we are going to be dealing with Japanese beetles a little more intensely than last year. M important thing I want to suggest to listeners is that um, a lot of people talk about the trap pouches that you can put up that releases pheromones to attract them. If you use those, I just want to say that it can also become um, a habitat and attract many Japanese beetles. If you do use them, if you have a bigger property, you really want to put it far away so you're not bringing all the Japanese beetles to your garden. Hmm. And it really isn't successful to use them in that way. Um, there are even inorganic methods are really toxic and don't work that well. Neem has shown to be semi-effective um, and so is soapy water. Their grubs can be affected by milky spore that one could put in your grass if you wanted to kind of contain them at that level of their grubs. And then when they're adults, it's really the brutal work of picking them. If you ever see, they kind of get lazy in the middle of the day and they kind of just sit there. So think about um, perhaps picking off all the Japanese beetles as you see them, which even if it doesn't save your plants for this season, will reduce the amount of eggs that they're laying so you're not just back in the same place next season. Fatima, we have about a minute left, um, maybe enough time to answer Eric's question. Well, it's not so much a question as an exclamation. He, he's kind of in a tizzy. He writes, bindweed, help! With a lot of exclamation marks. <laughs> Yes, bindweed is a brutal one. 
listen, um, there's, you know, people can use glyphosate and inorganic methods. I don't support that. One effective method is pouring boiling water over your bindweed. Bindweed is grows rhizomatically, so it can grow from any parts of its plant. Another successful um, thing you could consider is just constantly cutting it back as it's coming up. What I want to say to you, Eric, is just stay on it. Give it time. There are many different solutions you can use and don't let bindweed take over your garden. Is Do you learn from experience on something like that? Yeah. yeah. And, and really with weeds, it's being persistent and not giving up. And bindweed can take over entire gardens and it can live in the dark as well. So I suggest the boiling water. You could smother it as well for some time, um, but it can still live in the dark. So it's really about being persistent and staying on it. No quick solution there. Thank you so much, Fatima. You're a delight. Well, thank you, Ryan. A pleasure to be here with you all. Fatima Imad is co-founder and executive director of Frontline Farming in Denver, a food and farmers advocacy group. She also teaches at CU Boulder and owns a landscape company. We want to thank everyone who submitted their gardening questions. And here's another warm weather inquiry for you about bicycles. Have you wanted to get into biking but aren't sure where to start? Are you thinking about upgrading your wheels for summer? Do things about bike culture confuse you? We'll put your questions to a couple of Coloradans focused on making cycling more inclusive, whether it's riding in your neighborhood, getting groceries, or maybe taking on a trail. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org or leave us a message at 303-871-9191, extension 4480. Again, the email address, coloradomatters at cpr.org. The phone number is our main number, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. What do you do with stuff local recyclers won't take? Things you don't want to throw in the trash, like dead batteries, plastic bags, and CDs. If you're willing to pay, a growing number of companies find ways to recycle and reuse even the most confounding items. And they'll even pick them up. CPR's Andrea Dukakis reports. Here's something that really bugs Jess Corvinus. It's all that stuff you can't recycle or compost, like those on-the-go plastic pouches she buys for her four-year-old. Like for applesauce and yogurt, and I noticed that those were accumulating really fast. Corvinus lives in Denver's Whittier neighborhood, and she refused to let all those pouches end up in a landfill. And I did see that they have this TerraCycle label on them, so I looked up TerraCycle and saw that you can either send those in, or maybe there's a local community host, you can go drop those off. Corvinus may be more conscientious than most. She was spending a lot of time driving around town to drop off those TerraCycle pouches, to Goodwill to drop off used clothes, and to another place that recycles old electronics, to name just a few. Until one day she saw something on Facebook about the Happy Beetle, and signed up. It's one of a growing number of companies that finds ways to reuse things that are hard to recycle. 
so I get one pickup and they can disperse the items. <laughs> Corvinus pays $89 a year for quarterly pickups. Weekly pickups are $142 a year. She gets two cloth bags to fill, each about the size of a large trash bag. She can put out a larger single item, too. Corvinus keeps a list on her wall of things the company will accept, but she's not always sure. So when the Happy Beetle truck pulls up this morning, Corvinus asks the driver, Leslie Butler, about some of the items in her bags. It probably doesn't go in there. That's like a wipes thing. I don't know if you can... Uh, yeah, yeah, no. These tend to have some chemicals on them, any kind of wipe, so the chemicals contaminate the soft plastic... Also in Corvinus's bags, bubble wrap for packaging, which the company donates to other businesses so they don't have to buy more. It also contracts with companies that have found some pretty innovative ways to reuse things. Those plastic bags from the supermarket, for example, they can turn into outdoor decking. And another tricky material? Styrofoam, we take that to another recycling company, and they take all the air out of it. They compress it and densify it, and then that gets recycled. The company donates old clothes and books to nonprofits, and it safely disposes items with dangerous materials like light bulbs that contain mercury. Customers should still use their regular recycling bin for things like cans and bottles and cardboard. Founder Dave Kiefner worked at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden before he started the company two years ago this month. He says it began out of the same frustration Jess Corvinus had, but he admits finding a home for all his inventory can be a challenge. Sometimes we've had to be more creative, reach out to different art studios that do projects with kids. So they've taken a lot of different random things like Keys, uh, wine cork, even chopsticks, actually, they took last week. As for the name, The Happy Beetle, founder Kiefner said one night he was reading a book about insects to his son. One part described how dung beetles use animal waste to create shelter and food. That whole idea of finding value in what some of us consider waste. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, now craving the scent of lavender. You're at CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. Come on, you're gonna have to save yourself. Got nothing more to say.